Alive and Kicking on News Talk. Yes, this is Alive and Kicking, News Talk's health and wellness show. I'm Claire McKenna. You can get in contact with the show by emailing aliveandkicking at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire McKenna Presents. So today's show is going to be a little different. I was contacted by 18-year-old Lottie, who is currently in the mental health system. You'll hear from her in a moment, but after years of searching for answers, diagnosis and a treatment plan, she recently received one, only to be told that the wait time to see a therapist is at least eight months. And Lottie, believe it or not, is one of the lucky ones. She has medical insurance. Those within the public system are waiting even longer to get to that diagnosis point. In January of this year, the Mental Health Commission published its interim report on child and adolescent mental health services or CAMS and found it to be greatly lacking with many children lost within the system without follow up, without monitoring of medication and many turned 18 without any adequate support. Access to a psychiatrist depends very much on where you live in the country, with the longest wait lists being in Cork and Kerry, with many children waiting over a year to be seen at all. The final report is due later this year amid promises of a follow-up of all open cases and a clinical review of all community healthcare organisations across the country. So what about the people behind the reports and the statistics? Now, this piece today doesn't set out to have all the answers, but rather take a look at the reality of what is happening. This is just one voice of 18-year-old Lottie, who felt from a very young age that something wasn't quite right. When you were growing up, was there ever a time that you thought, I, I need help here? I want to describe it in the right way, but did you ever feel that there was something, that there was something different? Yeah, I did. Like from the age of like four. Because I didn't have the words to describe the feelings or whatever. I didn't know what any of it meant. And as you got a bit older and got into your teens, did you have more of a language around it? Did it become something a bit bigger or something that really needed to be vocalised? had my first year of secondary school. And then by the time it was second year, I was just like the very kind of down the symptoms started to kind of really come out I suppose like is that you know is it just like hormonal is it this is it that like you don't know and then I suppose after that you kind of just figure out that you know there's a bit of a an issue and what would have been the symptoms you would have been experiencing I'd be get very kind of high and kind of things were very euphoric and then also, you know, you drop and you kind of go like six feet under and it's like, where, where did that come from? You know, um, you know, just very low mood, a lot of mood swings, a lot of irritability. Um, I was like, just, I was very angry and I didn't know how to really explain myself for it. There was no diagnosis or anything. So I was kind of just very very confused and I just was like yeah no that was a very weird time in my life. So would you have started with the GP? Yeah. Do you start to look at it as a, a medical yeah. issue? I have to kind of check for like your physical health because you know if you have like a, a thyroid problem or something you know those things can obviously play a part into your mood. So yeah I suppose a blood tests and stuff like that. Um, My GP never put me on meds 
um, my hospital was the one to do that first, but they also check your physical health as well. So they'll do like a blood test the, the, the morning after you're admitted, they'll like a fasting or they do like a load of little tests just to see how your physical health is before they kind of jump to any meds or certain therapy and stuff. So how did you find the system then? Once you went into it and started seeing various support agencies, you were in hospital for a while. How did you find the whole experience? I thought Pats was fantastic. Like I think that that really helped. It gave me more clarity. It did its best and I thought that it was very, very beneficial. Um, When it comes to waiting lists for therapy it is so long and it takes so long and there's so many people in need and you know the public system is just a shambles I think you know like there's so many people who 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 have to speak to someone and I think it's just very invalidating when you are not able to because I mean, private therapy is just very, very expensive. And like, I didn't go to private therapy for years. I only went to private therapy really only like two months ago or something. Like I was always going to public. And for me anyway, I felt it was very inconsistent. And I need consistency in my life in order to kind of like feel in any way that this is helping. So you recently got a diagnosis. Tell us a little bit about that. Um, I was diagnosed with borderline personality disorder in October and I was diagnosed with that just um, my last admission in PATS. It's a personality disorder that is, you know, helped through therapy. Um, and it's an emotional kind of dysregulated disorder. A roller coaster. I think it needs a rebrand of a name. I think it could do with a better name anyway. But look, this is where you're at. And is it good in a way to get an answer to what you've been going through over the years to have, some might call it a label, but at least then there's a path, there's somewhere to go with it. I think so. It, it, is, it is more helpful because then you can, whether it's meds you need, whether it's therapy you need, whether it's anything you need to kind of know what you're dealing with but I don't think one should let the disorder kind of make them who they are do you know like whether it's been a recent thing or something that's been going on for a while I think it's like very important to know that it doesn't define you and I think I mean it's hard to really think that as well though in a way because it's like well this is something that is really affecting me and all that and it's easy to kind of fall into those like well you know I wish I was like different or all this kind of stuff I wish I didn't have these problems or whatever but I think it makes people more aware So what do you want people to know about the mental health system? I think there is help within it, but there also isn't. And there's a lot of kind of invalidation and a lot of confusion. And 
it's very difficult to kind of know where you stand I think everybody needs consistency and I think somebody being on a waiting list for nine ten months or whatever is just it is not it's not helpful for anyone um and I think people deserve better than that So why isn't the current system working? Well, coming up after the break, psychiatrist Professor Jim Lucy on the changes that need to take place within society as well as the system itself. Alive and Kicking on News Talk. You're welcome back to Alive and Kicking. Now, Professor Jim Lucy is a psychiatrist, a lecturer with Trinity College and the Royal College of Surgeons and until recently was a consultant at St. Patrick's University Hospital where he was medical director for 12 years. He's also the author of several books on mental health, which we'll come to in a moment. But Jim, you are very welcome. Thank you very much, Claire, for having me. It's great to be here. I knew you were going to be an important voice on this discussion, but before we get into it, I just think it's worth pointing out we're not going to be speaking about Lottie, Lottie's case, Lottie's diagnosis. We're only dealing with the waitlist and the waitlist that is being experienced by young people in the mental health system. So why do we have waitlists? Well, what's at stake in a waitlist? What are they about? What's what's their significance? That's the question we're asking. And on the face of it, they're a barrier to care, aren't they? They're a an indication of the uneven nature of our access to mental health care. Uh, we all have mental health issues. We all have mental health. But when we're talking about a service... We have waitlists because we're accessing a service. And the longer the waitlist, it's inarguable, the longer the delay in accessing that service. And that's an issue because that's a question that asks who gets to have mental health care? Why would you get mental health service? And and what is it about the nature of the service that's causing such a delay in accessing it? On the face of it, it's... um, obvious that we want as little waitlisting as possible. Is it a demand and supply issue and is it only going to get worse because we keep hearing that we're going to have this tsunami of mental health issues, particularly with young people after the pandemic? Of course it's a demand and supply issue because what you're doing with a waitlist is you're creating a situation where the uh, supply bill, the the demand builds up and the supply then has to uh, address it. And If you do it that way, you have to have a lot of justification. If you're genuine, if you're sincere about providing service, then you have to address the issue of waitlist. You can't just say, well, there's a waitlist. It has to be genuine. At the end of the waitlist, is there something like the end of the rainbow or is there nothing? And why? what would you do with with the experience of being placed on a waitlist? How is that governed? What are the issues about the leadership? What's the participation of the service user? We're now in an age of neurodiversity, of, of uh, a recognition of the voice of the service user. What's the service user's voice saying about the experience of being on the waitlist? That's why I think your listeners will be so interested in what Lottie has to say because she's experiencing this where it really matters, at the care face, at the experience level. She's finding herself waiting for care, waiting for service. And so we can't ignore the extent of waitlists and we have to unpack why they exist. There could be good reasons for a waitlist. There are absolutely um, uh, significant examples where a waitlist is actually a positive thing. But in general, it's reasonable to assume that the reason there's a waitlist is because the service is not forthcoming, or at least if it is forthcoming, the promise of it being delivered is delayed. 
And that's a problem if you're acutely distressed, if your function is being delayed. Uh, after all, if you recognise mental health need as being about the ability to live, work and love again. Now, in our country, one uh, in four of us will have a mental health need. Every family in the country has a mental health need. At least one member of every family has a mental health need. And crucially for young people, and Lottie's voice does speak for that, we know that three quarters of adult mental health need arises before the age of 25. And so people, your listeners will have he heard of CAMS, which is the uh, structured service for the delivery of mental health services to young people. And here, waitlists can be very impactful, especially since you know that adult mental health need largely arises in childhood. And so early intervention, early address of that will surely be good because we want to reduce the impact of mental health difficulty in childhood on the adult life we hope that people will achieve in well-being. And I touched on the CAMS report that, that came out, the interim report, which was quite damning in, in, in some cases. Yes, very damning. Um, what are some of the good reasons for a waitlist? Well, you could have a situation where you have a set of diagnoses, even the term diagnosis is questionable, a set of problems or difficulties, where you want to address them in a, a structured and evidence-based and scientific way. But the uh, practicality of doing that requires that you have six, seven, eight or ten people, for example, in order to uh, avail of that particular service offering. And so you might have a situation where you say, you have this diagnosis, but in six months' time, we can deliver you a package of psychotherapy, of skills-based learning, of recovery, of whatever it would be. It, it, it depends on the, on the problem. And that will be available to you on that time. And in fact, you will then get onto that particular package. With, imagine it's a bus. You'd say, well, look, there's a bus pulling out in three months' time and it'll be your bus. It'll have your name on it and it'll actually have an evidence-based, scientifically validated and acceptable, available, likable experience which will make a difference for you, but it's not going to happen for three months. But when it does, you're on it. That could be a very useful thing. After all, the delivery of mental health services probably in psychotherapeutic terms, will have to be group-based if we're going to meet the demand. And there's now a lot of evidence that group-based therapies are as effective and maybe in some aspects in terms of fellowship more effective than relentless one-to-one -one therapy. So you could suge suggest, and the classic example actually is in relation to one of the conditions that Lottie referred to, which is this condition borderline personality difficulty or emotional personality. And in those situations, there's a, an absolutely wonderful new movement. One of the great hopes of mental health care is that there's constant uh, research and constant uh, new insights. Uh, dialectical behaviour therapy is the term given to it. Um, and the uh, treatment is known as DBT is very expensive to give one-to-one. -one. Well, now we can give it in group-based settings but you wouldn't do it until you have the group assembled and it could take you some weeks or months and you could legitimately say there's a wait till everybody gets on the DBT bus. That contrasts with the other situation where you're saying we're putting you on a waiting list knowing that there's nobody there to deliver the group anyway and that would be completely cynical and um, 
I suppose if that happens, if that's a, if that's occurring, we then need to be saying, well, look, the positions for psychology, for the multidisciplinary team, the availability, the delivery of these services needs to be provided in a coherent fashion. Unfortunately, it's very patchy, depends on where you are, depends on whether you can access a, a region that is actually facilitating this and so on and so on. So it becomes a postcode lottery. And you use the analogy of, of, of the bus and I'm going to continue it. If you're standing yes. at a bus stop and you've no idea when the bus is going to come or what impact it's going to have on you, that's more stressful. Whereas when you have a plan and you have communication, that's very different. You can be a bit more relaxed knowing when it's coming. So what of the people who are just in limbo, who are just waiting, what sort of impact does it have on somebody with a mental health issue to be on a long wait list? I think it has a very negative impact If you're waiting for the bus, you know it's your bus. It's the one that's been established as taking you to the direction you need to go. You've agreed to be a participant in that. You're now an agent of your own recovery. And in the meantime, you could actually prepare yourself for that journey. And because there's things you could do, you could know the elements of the care and you could say, well, what's my best position to be in? You could even access um, free services of one kind or another online or whatever, knowing you're going to be into this um, evidence-based therapeutic journey on this, if you like, special bus. If you're not, frustration rises, you really don't have any direction, you, f- you can feel quite frustrated and disappointed, disillusioned, let down, given a diagnosis and nowhere to go. Now, that's a very strange experience. I've been given a label, we used to say. I'm a, I'm a child of the 60s or the 50s, actually. But anyway, labeling was very bad back then. We didn't l- believe in labels. So now we have the label because we've come to a view, well, actually calling a thing might be helpful. But it's not helpful if having called it, you then can't call the bus for it. And so you're left without a journey. And of course, all the impacts of that, including the distress for families who are left supporting people. I think we need, really need to call out to Ireland's families because uh, we, we, we said the community would care. We wanted the community to care but we have to enable the community to care. And, and the community can't give care. We never should confuse family life with mental health service. So we can't, we can't uh, underestimate what happens to families when they say, well, we've got our daughter, our son, our father, whatever, waiting for this bus that isn't going to come. And in the meantime, they have to help their loved one. So if you have one family, one member of every family in this kind of distress, of course, you have lots and lots of families who take different courses of action in relation to dealing with this. They either include the person and try and be kind, and they may be skilled, and but, they, but, but, but there's limits to what people could do. A family is not a mental health service. Or they exclude, and so you get, you get uh, um, families that cannot cope with somebody. Somebody's put out, and now you've got things like impacts of who are all talking about, things like homelessness. The truth is that mental health is the route towards societal well-being as well as individual and family well-being. And so when we have a waitlist that's a cynical waitlist, in other words, a non-service, as one of my early mentors used to call it, when you have a non-service, you actually have a person left out into society, often with no resource to recovery. Now, why would that happen? I think it's a deeper question. We have a moment to ask that question. Why would we do it like this? There's no shortage of money. It's not about the um, 
lack of resource. It might be about the misapplication of that resource. And certainly, uh, year on year, for decade and decade, we have spent less and less on mental health as a proportion of our total health spend. We've made a choice to do that because of our dark history of the asylums and our fear of acknowledging the universality of mental health difficulty. I've made mistakes about this myself, and I've I've wrestled with the idea as to whether it's stigmatic or anti-stigmatic to say that every family in the land has mental health difficulty. My view is that I've probably underestimated what I should have said is that mental health difficulty is part of humanity. And so if we look at it that way, leaving people without a service, without an address, is an offence to humanity. It's an offence to our nationhood. It's something we should make a priority. So why don't we? Well, one of the other legacies of the law of asylums is that we don't actually believe that mental health difficulty should be integrated into society. We don't believe in diversity in this context at all. If we did, it would be very different. Families that do this are extraordinary, where they include somebody with mental health difficulty. And they're an absolute joy to be part of because you get the kindness that comes from that. You get the wisdom and the overall human insight that is about loving each other. But many families can't do that. And societies that do, that do that are remarkable. But in, in, in its best instances, Ireland can and, and I think will do that, which is to include people who have mental health difficulty in our, all our resources and earlier. But we don't because we don't believe that mental health care works. We don't really believe investing in service works. We don't believe it because in our minds we remember that we used to put our people with mental health difficulty out in the hill and that they were abandoned and that they never came out. Now the average length of stay of somebody in a hospital, and by golly they're very rare now, is about four weeks. People get better all the time. And one of the great things I've found is that when you connect with that reality, when you hope around that reality, when you've got an integrity around it, a meaning and an empowerment of it, a chime as we call it, you get to understand that really this is an investment we desperately need to be making more of because it will be in all our interests and every one of us will benefit. So there's a lot of parts to this jigsaw that need to be amended and, and part of that is, is a mind shift for society that you're touching on there. I think it's it, that, that more than anything else. I mean, we keep talking about how, how much progress we've made and by golly, we have made progress. I mean, it's, it's, I don't have any... Any pessimism about this? Yes, I'd love change to have come more quickly. But no change has happened. We can speak about this. It's like we've taken it out from under the carpet, but we still don't really know what to do with it. No, we have a a degree of awareness now that we didn't have and no action (laughs) or insufficient action. We need to turn this awareness into actions. And to do that, we need to acknowledge things. Uh, and, and acknowledge truths. And, you know, not all mental health difficulty is the same. It, 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 it is not all based on the same model. There are varieties of approach and they need to be all integrated. There's a harmony, like anything else, education, for example, you know, uh, even politics. We need a variety and that's a good thing. And we have to then action the varieties 
and not feel they're in conflict, even this week and not mentioning other services. But we've had a return to the debate of the 60s in, in other media and on the, on the radio, people arguing who should be in charge of the team, whether it should be psychology, whether it should be medicine, or whether it should be... This is all so jaded for somebody of 40 years in this. I can remember this in my youth in, in the 60s, and psychiatry and dissent, whereas actually that debate is really over. Uh, we've, in, at, the, at the care face, the service user knows that they're looking for their rights. It's a human right to get well-being. And they also know that it works if you can access it. That's why they're clamoring for it. That's why Lottie wants to get on the bus because she knows, she knows, probably now with access to Google information, what works. She's heard of Marshall and she's heard of DBT. She knows about the new movement in that area, but there are countless others. So one of the things I wanted to do was to, in a sort of a plain-spoken way with no frills, no uh, distance from the reader to give out the evidence base of new and effective treatment to communicate mental health, well-being and service. That's actually the thing I'm most interested in. And I think more of us are aware that not communicating it is a bit like being behind the asylum walls. Yeah, you're so right. We don't talk about people getting better enough. No. You touched on uh, the funding there. Um, can we talk about that a little bit more? Because sure. people will come to that and say it's it's under-resourced financially, mm. Mm. Um, even to that we have only 6% of the overall health budget spent on mental health, which is mm. well below the World Health Organization's recommendation. Absolutely. But talk to me about the, the, the Tom Friedman model of care and, and how we spend money in healthcare. Well, you mentioned Tom Friedman. And, and I, I think it's a great model. People could look up that. What, what we have here is this less than 6% figure. But if you ask yourself, how many percent, what percent do you spend uh, in your household spend on, on, on breakfast? You might be able to know, but you, I think you'd probably put it into euros. You wouldn't put it into percentages. You'd say, well, how much does my household cost? And you'd put it into euros. And so I want to move away from this mystique of the percentages because nobody knows what it means. So let's imagine that we're pre-COVID, okay, because that's the last representative year we have data really on. We're in 2018, and it turns out we have 21 billion in income tax, okay? So you'd say, leaving out all the corporates and the transient money, which is huge, don't get me wrong, but 21 million, 21 billion we've earned ourselves and we have to spend. What do we spend that money on? Well, it turns out that we can be very proud if we believe in healthcare in Ireland, because we spend every penny of it on healthcare. Every penny. 17 billion from the public purse and the balance from the private purse. But it's equivalent to the total amount of income tax. It's unsustainable. And it's interesting that no political discourse I've heard about has ever suggested that we should do anything more than spend more money. From where, one wonders. Tom Frieden asks us to ask for value for what he calls health impact. It turns out that if you're spending all that money, and well done you, because health is really, everything depends on health. But if you're spending that money in the wrong place, you're not getting health impact. You're getting a waste. And it turns out that 40% of health need is mental health. The bulk of benefits for health are at the bottom of his triangle. If people could look at it now. They could just Google this. Tom Frieden's Health Impact Triangle. Share it with your candidate at the door when the elections come along. Ask him or her whether they're going to spend more or less or better. 
If we spend better, we put the money into the impactful places, like primary care, like mental health, like clean water, like education and safety in the streets. They're actually mental health impacts. But what we do is we spend it all at the top where the impact is very low in huge capital one-on-one inputs. So I'm actually calling for a redirection of our health spend, obviously towards mental health. In my experience, in my life in medicine, that's where it really matters. But the science shows that that's true because when you look at the epidemiological work, somebody like Frieden, successor was Fauci, these people, you can look and see how impactful it would be if we simply reversed the trend, started to pay our money into the mass impacts where the individual cost is low but the impact is huge rather than into the small impacts where the individual cost is huge and the impact is low. Yeah, and the thin end of the wedge is where the crisis is, where it's already at its peak rather than getting in with early intervention to stop it getting to that point. Exactly. If you wait, that's the real wait list because we have the individual experience of wait list from Lottie. But actually, if everyone is waiting for this redirection, then we're all suffering. Yeah, we're waiting for the crisis before we enter the healthcare system. Can I ask you about the people working within the system then? Because rightly so, we focus on the patients and the people seeking the care. But to have these wait lists and these problems within the mental health service, that must have a big impact on the staff. It has an enormous impact, Claire. And it's so great you mentioned this because... We've mentioned families and communities. We've mentioned the service user who's, who's experiencing the pain. But we have a real, real issue with our service providers, our nurses, our therapists, our, 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 our vast army of um, really good people. And they've taken a huge battering. They've taken a huge battering through COVID, as all the healthcare providers have. And the consequences are enormous. But they've also taken a battering over generationally being told that they're bad. Imagine being in a service where you're told, well, it's a non-service and you're not going to get that psychologist you need to really deliver the CAMS. You're going to have to wait for the appointment of that uh, therapist, that psychiatrist, whoever it is. So many of our teams are virtual and the gaps in them makes them not look like a blanket. They're a crochet with large holes and you can't really wrap around the care. And you've entered into the service genuinely wanting to be the clothing and and the substance of a human being's recovery. Make no mistake, the people in mental health services know it works. They're in it because they're dedicated to doing that work. They love the work. They love the recovery. I have loved every minute of my 40 years of in, of being in this because so many recoveries Yes, there's tragedies and we're in the real world. This is, if you like, the soft underbelly, the unspoken nature of human life that we see, that we share it with no one. We keep to ourselves because of the dignity of people. But we see every day the potential for recovery and we know it works. And to be told the services are bad, to be in underprovided services, to be frustrated in doing the work you do is a day and daily problem. It's, it causes a huge wastage in our staff. So many say, I can't go on any longer. And after COVID, we are having huge problems staffing and recruiting. So I'm saying to people in these services that have been marked down as poor or marked down as underprovided or inadequate, hold on. We're going to try and lift your spirit. You are doing great work 
And the great work you do, we're going to commend, we're going to support it with finance, we're going to recognize it with science, and the great work you want to do, we're going to make possible by a change in our attitude. Well, hopefully the end of that report and the subsequent investigation will bring about the change needed for everybody within the system. Professor Jim Lucy, thank you so much. I think you're a real indication of some of the very special people working within the industry. And if you want to delve deeper into the mindset shift that Jim mentioned, I think he has many books, but his most recent is perhaps one that speaks most to that, A Whole New Plan for Living. And I would recommend everyone have it because, as Jim says, we all have mental health. Professor Jim Lucy, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Claire, very much. Coming up after the break, Niall Breslin on the importance of early intervention with mental health treatment and his determination to have it on the curriculum of our schools. Alive and kicking on News Talk. You're welcome back to Alive and Kicking. So we've heard from Professor Jim Lucy before the break, but another strong advocate for mental health is Niall Breslin. Having spoken about his own struggles publicly, he's gone on to become one of Ireland's strongest voices for mental health. He's a founder of Lust for Life, a young person's charity, and is currently undertaking a PhD looking at our treatment of mental health historically in this country. Niall, you're very welcome. So what's your reaction then to the current waitlist for young people in mental health? Well, I suppose my reaction on reading the CAMS report, the interim report, was that was the catalyst for me to do my PhD because uh, it's just not working. And I think the biggest issue here is that we keep pretending it is. And at a government level, at a health system level, it's not functioning. And one of the huge recommendations of the CAMS report is we have to look beyond the current model of care and look at a new way. And that's the glaringly obvious top of the list. And I just think it's going to be ignored again. And my PhD is looking at 200 years of this intervention. And these reports were happening, maybe not in child and adolescent mental health services, but in 1966, these reports were happening. So as a country, we either accept them or we don't. But right now, to me, that has to be the stake in the ground for how we treat children in this country. And it's not good enough. It's not going to be an overnight fix. And I'm not expecting you or your PhD to have all of the answers. But what is the the mindset shift or the new way of, of treatment that we need to have? Politicians like to use words like complex to avoid actually doing anything about it. The issues are complex. The solutions aren't. I truly believe the solutions aren't. The more I... I've kind of fell into this research. And one of the big solutions here is early intervention programs, which won't solve everything, of, of course, but we have to look at preventative models of care because right now Ireland operates a very bad crisis model. And we have to do better. So early intervention, what does that look like? I mean, we have one of the best education systems in the world, but we have to do it the right way. It has to be resourced and has to be resourced with evidence-based programs. It also has to be resourced where we have psychologists and play therapists within the schools that they're not being asked to manage the budgets on those. These, you know, there was an announcement when we launched the Lust for Life Schools program. Uh, the Minister of Education announced that there's going to be budget for psychologists and counsellors in each primary school. And I spoke to two principals that day that said that equated to €180 Euro a year for that school. So the kite flying has to stop here. Tell me a bit more about the the program with Lust for Life um, and the kind of the way it works and some of the feedback you've had from schools. Yeah, well, we 
when we started to build it, we needed to look at a solution where we weren't able, weren't able to get into schools. It just wasn't a feasible thing for us to try and get into schools every week. So we, we tapped into this idea of having a Netflix model, kind of an online model, where we start putting the programs onto this platform that we create. That's not just for mental health, by the way. If there's other charities that move their or want to move their schools programs online, that this can facilitate it as well. Uh, we put a lot of work into it. We got UCD and DCU to evaluate the programs, and we worked. We put a, a teaching, or sorry, a parent steering committee together with parents' council, teaching council, the ombudsman for children, the top educational experts and psychologists. We could get our hands on, and we said, let's see if we can solve something here. So we're now in over a thousand primary schools, and um, our aim is to be to have, to every primary school in Ireland have access to the programs, and these programs are free. Uh, my real passion is curriculum. How do we actually support and get in with curriculum? But it's important, Claire, to point out, this isn't just saying this solves the problem. The problem still needs, or we're always going to have to have a system that's able to support children when they're, when they're really overwhelmed and properly, and they don't end up in adult psychiatric units, or they don't wait for two years. Because one of the things that's really important for children is early assessment. So if we can assess children early, we can then design intervention to support that child, which has a gargantuan impact on the rest of their life. And, you know, my partner is, you know, a psychologist. She deals with this as well. And she said, if we can support them early and everything can change. And I, th- I just think right now the evidence points us towards that. My research hopefully will help put a bit more light upon what does a mental health psychosocial model look like. And the other thing we've got to look at here, Claire, is there's an awful emphasis on mental health where we keep putting all the emphasis on the individual. Like, you're just not quite resilient enough, or you just need to more stress programs, or you just need to drink more water. We need to start looking at what's around us and the social forces that influence us. Because when I look back at the 200 years of intervention in Ireland, it's actually the social forces that have the greatest impact on people's mental health and emotional well-being. And can you elaborate on that a little and what some of those might be? Well, in Ireland, say post-famine, the biggest one would have been poverty. You know, and what was happening is families that couldn't afford to support maybe one of their children, there was a a legal act called the Dangerous Lunatics Act, which basically meant you could, without evidence, put people into institutions. So people who couldn't afford for their son to feed them were putting them into institutions instead, instead, which then led by 1950 Ireland to have the highest level of people in psychiatric institutions in the world. This is stuff we don't talk about. And these legacies still prevail very much in our current system. And un- unless we're willing to actually stand back together collectively and, and look at a paradigm shift here, I fear we'll have this conversation in 30 years' time. So to understand our current system, you do need to look at the legacies of 200 years of mental health intervention. And are there other models worldwide that we could look at where the system is working more efficiently and effectively? I think Ireland is a population of 5 million people, size of Manchester. We can do this. That's the biggest motivation I have. We can absolutely do this. I'm very positive we can. We have amazing people in this country. We have an amazing heart. Um, we we, the one thing I think about Irish people is we don't like unfairness. We believe in fairness. I do think at the core of, of our psyche that's a big part. 
And it's not fair to fail children like that. So I think we can do this. I really believe it. And politicians, I don't believe, are the big bad wolves who don't want to do anything. I just think this scares them. I genuinely think this area scares them. And unless we get political will here to actually really change these systems, we won't be able to. And I think we have to understand we can. And that's, that has to be at the core of my message here. I believe we can. I can believe we can do this better. Uh, and I believe it's the people who can do it. But we have to admit that it hasn't worked to this point. I think that has to be in therapy. The first thing you do in, in my own therapeutic journey was admit that the way I've dealt with things to this point hasn't worked. And you have to accept that. And that's a really important moment in therapy. And I think as a country, we have to do the same. And if we can't necessarily rely on a top-down change, because as you said, we hear words like complex and we still have only 6% of the overall health budget spent on on mental health, which sends out a a, a poor message from the get-go. What can we do at grassroots levels? Because there will be people listening now who who are engaged, who want to bring about change. What what that what can they do to be part of that? Well, I think on that six percent that you talk about, my genuine feeling is, you know, the World Health Organization says a minimum of twelve. I'd be worried of us spending twelve percent if we're going to spend it in the same way we're spending it now. It's, it, that's your issue. That's the fundamental problem, is that we are spending on something that doesn't work. And yes, we need more resources and we need to put funding into the properties and hospitals and stuff, but we also need to look at the system. And what can we do as a society? I think we're doing our job. I think we're eroding the stigmas. We're having conversations. We're having conversations in restaurants, and pubs and clubs. GAA clubs, we're, we're doing brilliant work and we're eroding a stigma that has tried its best to destroy many generations and it's, it's a really proud thing to watch. It's now over to our systems. You know, I'd love to give you the grassroots thing, but I think we're doing it. I think we really are and I think this peer support stuff that we're creating, this supporting of people who feel overwhelmed, having conversations, holding them, being an emotional scaffolding for them, not judging them. That's our job. But now we, we really have to look at those that govern us and those who are paid to govern us. And they need a bit of bravery and courage as well as leaders. I get it. I really do. I, it, it's a tough conversation, but you have people who are willing to support them and help them. There's amazing charities out there. There's amazing individuals like, I know you have Jim on. These are people that can help, um, but they need to listen now, I think. Noel Breslin, thank you very much. Thank you very much. So there is much we are doing right, but also much we are doing wrong. And although it's complex and there is no one solution to the many problems within the mental health system, there are tangible steps which could be taken that would be of huge benefit to patients, to staff, to the budget spend and to society as a whole. I want to give the last word on today's show to Lottie. Why did you want to tell your story? What was the message you really wanted to get out there? I just want people to know that they're like not alone and I want people to know that it does improve. And how are things for you now? Things are much clearer. I think it never truly goes. 
um, and that is something that is kind of difficult to kind of accept I suppose but it definitely does for me anyway I think it for for now I think I think I have been doing a bit better and a lot better actually and I think that and how do you feel about the future you're going to be leaving school um and you are waiting to get your your therapy and your treatment so how do you feel about the next few years oh I'm so sad to be leaving school but I'm really excited for college and just to kind of continue with music and singing and you know travel and stuff like that I just I think it'll be very fun but it'll be very upsetting as well to kind of just say goodbye to what you know and all that kind of stuff and my friends are such a huge part of my life as well and I just it's gonna be weird not seeing them every day you know um and the, when the therapy begins, mm-hmm. how do you feel about about that? What sort of changes do you think it'll bring? I suppose we'll have to wait and see. I don't really, you know, hopefully just you find somebody who you have a good connection with. And I think that's a very important thing. You need somebody who you feel like you can talk to. Well, I see a very bright future ahead for sure. Um, and I know it's tough to let go of the old and embrace the new but I've I've no doubt wherever you go you'll shine your light bright and I wish you all the best So that's it for Alive and Kicking for this week My thanks to my producer Aoife Breen and to Hugo De Silva Scott who was on sound Thank you to all of my guests today to Jim Lucy to Brezzy Niall Breslin and of course to Lottie and thanks as ever to you for listening I will see you next week Alive and Kicking on News Talk.